Welcome to the Core Podcast, brought to you by Core to Cloud. We talk about all things cybersecurity, about the latest technologies, the insights, the learnings, and also a little bit about our culture in this ever-evolving environment. I'm Kelly, and I head up the marketing department. And I'm Phil from the technical team, and we're going to take you through all our technology in a really interesting way. Phil talks technical, why I keep it lighthearted and remove all the jargon. We also have a selection of guest speakers, including a few people popping in from the Quarter Cloud team. So let's dive in. Thank you for joining us, John, for for another episode. For anyone listening, John, would you be able to introduce yourself, get a little bit of background and and where you're currently working? Yeah, most certainly. And thank you very much for inviting me along. Um, And thank you for listening as well. Um, So, yeah, I'm Dr. John Blythe. I'm a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society and current director of cyber workforce psychology at Immersive Labs. Um, by background, I'm a psychologist. Um, I've spent the last 10 years very much focused on the psychology of cybersecurity, so understanding why um, people fall victim to um, cybercrime, but also how we can use psychology to better protect people and organizations from cyber threats. Another key area kind of my research and passion has been mental health and specifically stress, burnout and employee engagement, which is why I'm really keen to chat on this podcast today with you i feel like this is a sort of podcast where i should talk and just let you go because you've got loads more experience than me i've just got the dipping of toe of being in that um well i guess roll back a little bit how did you um i'm assuming you went to university how did the cyber security become an interest or a path like for everyone i've spoken to so far it's been a bit of an accidental journey how about yourself yeah, I mean, it's the same for me as well. It was, it was kind of an accidental journey for me. I've always been interested in psychology, so mainly psychology of, of people, I suppose. Mm. Specifically, so I did an undergraduate in psychology. And as part of that, I was really interested in organisational psychology, so why people behave in certain ways in organisations, why people choose certain careers, but also how you create organisations that enable people to be productive, but also enable people to flourish and really be themselves at work. So really, I, I, I did that master's in Oxig and I, was, I absolutely loved it, loved the psychology, loved it, loved what I worked. I specialised back then mainly on employee engagement and burnout, mm. which is obviously quite topical to today. And then I had this opportunity to do um, some research on why employees don't follow best practice at work when it comes to security. And it was around the time of David Cameron's government, so specifically when his government made cybersecurity a tier one priority. So I think this probably was about 10 years ago now. And it's crazy to think that it wasn't a tier one priority. Ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like prior, prior to that, it only became a tier one priority 10 years ago. So I had that opportunity to do that research project, looking at why employees don't use, you know, strong passwords, the psychology behind that. And then I had an opportunity to apply for a PhD, which I'd never, ever planned to do. Um, and yes, yeah, so I spent the, the PhD, which was about three, three years, really focused on the psychology of behaviour change. So looking at how we take organisations away from being very 
tick box compliance focused with security awareness to actually how do they how do you best design for behavior change and really enable your staff to to act securely um and then yeah i finished that about eight years ago and then my career's kind of gone down different routes since then as well how so from your research when you were doing that time was there any um were there things within the research paper that you were like oh i'd never expected that or was it everything like are we just human beings and a little bit lazy like what what kind of was the things that you came out of that well well back then that the kind of narrative which you do still see today but i think we're a lot better as an industry is mm. you know seeing employees as the weakest link seeing as them as a threat as something that needs to be controlled and managed and that very much was the default narrative 10 years ago was very much how do we fix people to therefore fix security um in a lot of my research the, the work that i did myself but also you know reading a lot of the academic literature just shows that that isn't the case and it's certainly not the right approach to take when addressing the people aspect we very much need to be focusing on the why why is it that people fall victim to online online crime why it's that people don't follow best practice and what you often find from a lot of the research is that it's not the person it's the environment that they're in it's the okay. the policies of the organization that often not designed with people in mind and the classic example of that is your password policies so you know in the early 2000s we told everybody to use very short and complex passwords and to change them every 30 days and to use different passwords for every account now you'll notice that the government use very different guidance and advice for passwords because they've learned so much about how people remember passwords and how they really struggle to remember so many different passwords at different accounts because we never designed security with human psychology and the way in which we behave and think in in it, when it was when it was initially designed mm -hmm. if that makes sense um so, so much what i learned was actually just being a bit more championing championing people really and really putting people at the heart of security because in so many organizations that you speak to they do see they do blame their employee and their employees they do treat them as a weakest link and it just leads to such negative security cultures so that's probably what i learned the most really from from all that research that i did and also because we're from the way of saying offline that i'm learning from all the interviews that is that the cybersecurity industry and the burnout and the stress i think we initially just think of the technicians but there is also everyone in in the, in the industry because it's fast paced it's moving but also like you were saying the stigma you don't want to be that one working for a cybersecurity a technical company to for for a phishing attack there yeah there, there is that stigma where, where you were saying about um policies and not protecting people there's nothing more um uncomfortable to be the one to be like put your hand up and be like oh oh i i clicked on it like i've done it i i yeah. started it and that that blame i call it the blame game which is you know like and, and a lot of companies they don't do this intentionally that they are trying to control a risk but the unintended consequences they are creating stress for their staff yeah. through some of these approaches and the simulated fishing is the best example of that this you know sending your staff phishing emails, having punitive policies where it's free clicks and you're sacked, or it's let's name and shame them on a company Slack board. And it just it's just the wrong approach in so many different ways because it just means that people are so unlikely to go to security teams if they think something's gone wrong. They're less likely to report if they do click on a phishing link, like a genuine one. 
Um, and it just it does actually create a lot of kind of acute stress for people once they realize that they have fell for a fishing link. And there's actually a really interesting s- story actually that I um, cite a lot in my presentations, which was there was a case, I think maybe two or three years ago, of a woman in in, Edim- in a firm within Edinburgh and she had fell for a, I think it was a CEO, CEO fraud fishing mm-hmm. attack. So basically, the, the attacker sent it on a Friday afternoon. She sent £200,000 to the attacker's email. And then on Monday, they, the company found out that all this money had gone missing because the attacker had pretended to be the CEO. That's not the interesting part of that story because that, that fraud is quite common. What was interesting was how the company responded to to that. What they decided to do was sack oh. this employee. But then they decided to take her to court for losing that £200,000. And the reason for that was they said she had done security awareness training. She should never have fell for that. So it's her fault and we want that money back. So, and if you read the story, which is quite disheartening, like that woman talks so much about the stress that that, that court case caused her, but also the actual... Please tell me she won. She did, she did win, yeah. The <laughs> I thought you were just going to say, please. <laughs> it's really interesting because no, yeah. um, I did a podcast with um, a guy called um, Charlie. Um, he actually is um, Met Police, but now he works for their, their cyber side. And, um, yeah. and he was saying where we're so um, far behind on on criminal activity and how we how we um protect a victim um online and he used a really interesting example in the sense that if you have been raped or you've been broken into your home like someone's um you know or if you're an old age uh, you've been manipulated and someone's convinced you that they're coming to fix and they end up taking everything or they're someone that you trust on a date and you end up unfortunately you know in that bad situation you wouldn't then take the victim and shame them on a board, tell them yeah, the exactly. training that they yeah. didn't do and best practices of how they come have done better. Um, yet on a digital way, we take that emotion away out of a victim and we we do it in a different way. And he says it that's the one thing that he can't understand as a police officer is how we've not in the next over the last ten years not improved that. And I think you're saying yeah, the same thing. Yeah. And you say that all the time with victims of online crime as well, like victims of romance fraud. The amount of times oh, these poor victims get bl- blamed and shamed and, you know, like when you see articles and then you see the comments underneath, it's always people just victim blaming. And I don't know what it is about our culture, but there is just this inherent um, default approach, which is often people will just blame the victim. You know, it was their fault. They shouldn't have been so stupid rather than trying to understand why that happened and how we can best use that knowledge to to support people and, you know, prevent that from happening to other people as well, rather than just pointing fingers at, at victims. And also, I think people have forgotten how much it, was, it has evolved, when, especially if we, we look at fishing as one area. It's not like a standard, hi, I am the prince, you know, which the original yeah. ones. Like, they're really sophisticated, aren't they? They normally wheedle their way in they normally have a lot of points they normally have a very close to accurate email address they and you know i've been on some talks recently where uh, some of them even befriend their children through social sites so they can learn you know learn things so that so they can make a human connection with someone so 
that takes yeah. your barrier away. It's not like you're manipulated and it is a really obvious, silly thing to click on, is it? I mean, I think that's what we need to also bring up. You're yeah. being psychologically manipulated or however. Exactly, you yeah. I, I always say that uh, fishers are the best psychologists because they mm. use, use psychological tricks to emotionally get people to act. Um, and they make a lot of money from it as well, but <laughs> not not for good purposes. No. Um, yeah, but it's it is, and it's it's so difficult for people to detect that because when you have that emotional response, you know, if you've got an email that's pretending to be from your CEO, if your CEO tells you to do something, you normally go and do it. Mm. So it's not unsurprising that quite a lot of people fall for the gift card scams from the CEO type of attack that are quite common because it's just that's just how people behave and the, the best way of mitigating those types of threats is to have better policies and have better comms internally you know if your if your ceo tells your staff i will never email you asking you for gift cards if you get that type of email contact oh. my executive assistant or something you know like if they communicate that somewhere then yeah. people know oh, actually the ceo would never ask me to do this um and just yeah exactly it's just knowing but also as human beings i don't know you're you're the doctor in the room but are are we not trusting by nature and that's also what makes us nice like i feel like if i yeah. if I, i'd never get a job done if i opened every email like oh, has this actually come from like you you'd just sit wouldn't you you'd never move no 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 you wouldn't i mean we are that that's kind of how we've developed and evolved as a species we naturally are trusting of other people because we assume they have good intentions mm. and that, you know, by being nice and trusting them, that's just, you know, how we've been taught to grow up as well. Um, so it's really hard to unseat that. And, you know, if you did spend five minutes analysing every single email, you'd never get anything done. Yeah. Um, and, you know, our brains have, have adapted to do things really fast and processing emails is just one of the ways in which we do that. We we just we process them so quickly, so we don't spot deceptive cues like, oh, that email address is slightly off, oh, or that link's yeah. ever so slightly dodgy, because, you know, you've 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 defaulted to your fast way of thinking. So it's it's a really difficult behaviour to unseat, but we, the best way of mitigating it is focusing on that positive culture. Okay. So really focusing on a no blame culture, working with your staff, so being really clear that that you're running those types of campaigns if it's an efficient campaign. Interesting. So you would, you would actually, some companies don't tell them, do they? And they just run it and see who makes a mistake. You would be, you you think that you should proactively tell them it's coming. Yeah, because some people, like if you, I, like I've interviewed like a lot of employees about security. They don't like to feel entrapped when mm. it comes to security. Like particularly some groups who see technology as being quite alien to them. They don't like to feel entrapped because they don't like to feel stupid. So if you're running, if you're running these types of campaigns secretively, and then there's going to be some sort of email either directly to them with their manager CC'd in saying, "Oh, you failed," that that could embarrass them. And you know, embarrassment's quite—it's—it's it's quite can be quite shameful for a lot of people. So you know, it's just meeting meeting people where they're at. Like, work actually just work with your employees. You know, there's nothing stopping organisations from getting employees involved in the design of these campaigns because they'll tell them straight away, oh, actually, I don't think you should do that because, you know, some of my colleagues might find that quite upsetting or maybe we should do it like this and design the comms like that. Your, your staff are really your experts when it comes to your your security awareness because they're the ones that you're trying to persuade with it. 
so yeah, very much don't don't run them in secret. T- tell tell your staff you're going to do them. What you're going to use the data for? Is it going to be used in t- any, any in terms of any kind of performance related aspects? Um, and very much focus on how you can use it to incentivize people. So rather than trying to catch people out, have campaigns and competitions on how much emails p- people can spot. Have incentives. Oh, I see. So uh, make make the positive out of the negative. Yeah, like focus more on the positive angle rather than the trying to catch people out, which is where where they tend to go quite horribly wrong. Uh, I, that's quite nice. Like, yeah, can you spot how many in your inboxes are actually malicious? The more you get them, yeah, that makes sense because then you're yeah, and it, and it builds and it and it builds people's confidence because one of the the key reason why people fall for phishing emails, and there's quite a lot of psychology research looking at this, is because they lack confidence in their ability to do it. So the more that you can build people's confidence to spot phishing emails, the more likely they're going to be able to do it. And if you look at the theories of confidence, so what in psychology we call self-efficacy, that's the psychological term, it's all about you know breaking it down into easy steps give people really easy emails to spot, then increase the difficulty of them over time. In the same way that you would tr- educate a child and build their confidence in doing something, you'd start off easy and make it more difficult. You know, use persuasion, use positive reinforcement, use incentives, you know, let people experience what like an, an accomplishment feels like when it comes to spotting a phishing email. Because if, if, if they only ever experience the negative side, which might be the, the stress and the anxiety of clicking on one, you're never going to get them there. They're never going to feel confident in it. So you really need to to work on building their confidence because that's how you're really going to create an empowered workforce to spot fishing. I like that, especially when you're saying you're getting involved with the content because you are then learning how someone's building someone and how someone might write something or how they may use language to encourage you to click on something. Like, like you said, yeah, if you're exactly. a child and you're learning something, you wouldn't... I don't know, ask them to read the encyclopedia in front of their class when they've no, got exactly learned to read. You wouldn't, because <laughs> then you'd stop them from ever wanting to pick up a book or to read. It's It makes sense. Yeah, you never think about it like that. Now you've put it like that. Yeah, why would we ever do it the other way? You said that you did a lot of research into like organisation and, and burnout and things like that. So I, I talked to you offline before this, but there was an, in, in Gartner, it was saying that 51% of cybersecurity professionals self-identified as burnt out and 65% of those were considering leaving the industry because of unmanaged workplace stress. Um, I just wanted to know, obviously you're uh, an expert in this and also in the same industry, um, what your, your thoughts was on that and whether it's kind of a, an industry problem or an individual problem or if you think it's somewhere in the middle yeah it's a i mean it's a great question it doesn't the statistic doesn't surprise me because you regularly see the tech sector as a whole being one of the most stressful sectors to work in i think what makes it particularly unique to cybersecurity is because we're so new mm. really as a as a sector and that does bring unique challenges to how organizations manage the stress of their staff. A lot of cybersecurity rules, they're relatively quite new, which means that you might have quite a lot of role ambiguity. The organization might have brought you in to do one thing and actually your your role is really unclear or you might have re- really high expectations over the direction and your responsibilities. So one thing, for example, with cybersecurity is we carry a lot of accountability for quite a lot of risk, but also that risk increases 
both reputationally over time, f- financially with a lot of you know regulatory fines, but also the the public's opinion of your organisation as well if you if you're seen to not handle their data correctly. So a lot of cybersecurity professionals are carrying quite a significant amount of risk for, on behalf of the organisation, and that that d- doesn't surprise me. That does create a lot of uh, stress. What a lot of the stress research shows is that there is certain types of job roles which are more indicative of what we would probably call more chronic stress. So, okay. you know, stre- everyone experiences stress. You know, like, you know, those times you might think you've lost your car keys and suddenly mm. you've gone to fight or flight response. But chronic stress, which is more ongoing and sustained stress over time is where it can be quite bad because that's more linked to not just mental health concerns, but also physical health as well. Because if you experience chronic stress, you, you're more likely to get coronary heart disease. You're more likely to also suffer from other mental health problems like depression as well. So when we're talking about stress, really, it's chronic stress, which is the main challenge that we may face in, in the cybersecurity sector. But return to my point earlier about those kind of markers of high stress jobs and what, of the, what a lot of the psychology research shows is that it's actually high strain jobs which are the most concerning. Okay. And what and what those are are basically jobs that have high demands. So these demands might be workload, it might be task demands, it might actually be emotional demands as well. So if you're on a job that has high job demands, that's one part. But the second part is if the job has low control. So if you have a job role where you're not given much control over how you do your work, over the decisions that you can make, Historically, these types of jobs are things like nurses, for example. Nurses typically have quite high strain jobs because it's very emotionally demanding work, very um, high workload, but actually very little control. And those types of jobs have significant uh, job job strain and they really are quite high markers for for stress. So really what we need to look at in terms of the cybersecurity sector, but also within organisations, is actually are there any types of those high strain job roles within our cybersecurity functions where people have very high demands on on their role, but actually very little control over their jobs. So for example, if you think of like incident responders, for example, mm-hmm. a job role where it is a lot of acute stress, but actually do they ha- have a lot of control over that high workload that they're given? Um, and that that is kind of one of the key things that we see in stress research is that managing those high-strain job roles is quite an important part of uh, stress management within organisations. That's interesting. So what I I guess with this is there might be people that are listening in our sector that I'm hoping are either um, can relate to the story or maybe not even relate, but, um, but if they can relate to it and they're feeling that they might be stressed or is there things that they can do as an individual or are there things that they can raise to their organization to improve that situation because obviously we don't want people to leave the industry and if people are listening to this and have got an interest in cybersecurity, we don't want them to go well that sounds awful I'm not having you know like everything that's going on in the country with like all the strikes of education and nursing you're kind of thinking oh gosh the next generation that's looking at those two industries yeah. is probably thinking absolutely not um which is awful which is really scary i find that more scary so I, I don't want that to come out because someone that works in this industry and i love it and i love the pace of it um and i love that part of it what would you say if you are feeling that you know it's not just a 
um, a stressful day it's becoming regular and there's a bit and they can relate to maybe they're not in control of their work or all that what would you say would be um, good starting points to re- to leave that if you're if you're an individual and you're experiencing quite a lot of stress there is a number of things that you can do yourself to improve the, your ability to manage stress so one of those is looking at um, building your personal resources so when it comes to what I was speaking about earlier, those job demands. And job demands are really what causes a lot of stress in organisations. It's that high workload, high uncertainty, high risk in the context of cybersecurity. There's a lot of psychology research shows that people who have high personal resources can better buffer those impacts of those job demands. And personal resources, these are things that you bring as an individual to your job role. So it's things like, and there's four, there's four aspects to it. There's being optimistic, having confidence, being resilient, and also having hope as well. And it's called psychological capital. So if you Google psychological capital, there's a few surveys online where you can self-assess how well you perform across these four things. And it could be, for example, that you are not very good at hope. So you might not have very good goal-setting skills, or you might not be very hopeful of the future. So what you can do is, you know, look look for online resources or look for opportunities in which you can, you know, upskill yourself in those four areas. How can you be more personally resilient? How can you be more optimistic as an individual? And there's a lot of research that supports that. If you can improve yourself across those four components, you'll be more, um, you'll have more psychological capital, which means you can better buffer the impacts of those stressful components of your job role. That's probably more of a kind of, longer term approach I would mm-hmm. say to to managing stress it's very much going to require using an individual to go on a personal development journey with improving your hope optimism resilience and confidence I think a key tip um, and it's an approach that I use quite a lot with with people that I mentor is that take fat like take like take five a day not not in terms of food but in terms of your mental health and that is connect so each day always look to connect with other people whether it's your family and friends, whether it's your colleagues. Connection is just such an important part of, you know, being a human. If you don't have connection at work, that can, in itself, that social isolation can cause quite a lot of stress. So do look for connection every single day, whether that's with people at work or people in your your community, your family and friends. Look to be active every single day, whether that's even just going for a 10-minute walk in the morning, on your lunch break. We know that if you're just going to sat, sit there at your computer all day, it's not going to make you feel any better. It's not going to help you manage that stress any any, um, any more than... Um, sorry, I'm losing my trail of thought there. <laughs> but really, the, the point there is just needing to be, to be more active, either taking exercise classes or, you know, just going for a walk. Looking to give as well. So how can you, you know, give to somebody else? You know, that could just be, you know, reaching out to a family or friend asking how they are, you know, maybe it's actually given back to your local community or a local charity. We know that by showing compassion and being caring and giving to other people, it also improves our mental health as well. So doing that okay. on a daily basis, even if it could just be something small, um, like a token gesture or just a small gesture, that's really important for, for managing stress as well. A fourth one is keep learning, huge important part of our personal development, but but you know where can you where can you learn on a daily basis as well? Like, is it reading a blog? Is it you know maybe having access to a cybersecurity platform where you Listen can upskill yourself? <laughs> Listening to podcasts like this, you know, just reading books, watching documentaries, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. As long as it's within your passion, 
um, that keep learning such an important part. And finally, the fifth one is is taking notice, which links a little bit to mindfulness as well. But this idea that you know just taking taking notice of the environment, you know, rather than constantly feeling that you need to be on top of everything, you know, just take five minutes to yourself, take in the environment, you know, don't eat your lunch at your desk where you're not mm-hmm. really enjoying it, you know, eat it away from your computer where you can actually appreciate what you're eating and really enjoy it. So those five steps there are really important for stress management, actually, but for your mental health more generally as well. If we can do them, those five things every day will probably making huge steps towards better stress management. I um, use an app called Headspace and they do videos in mm. the morning to like make you kind of like realise like kind of like how insignificant you are a little bit, but it, I kind of like that. Um, but there was one called the Dandelion that I watched on Monday and I didn't realise that a, a period of time the Dandelion opens and closes its flowers to the sun. And if you hit, oh, really? yeah, and then it buds and then it turns into the beautiful little things that you can, I used to call them little fairies that used to blow and, and scatter everywhere. Um, and that actually it grows underground for such a long time before it comes up and we miss all that because we're just walking around. But it gave you the time of when you could go and look at dandelions when they open and close. Um, so I took my dog for a walk and sat in a field where there's loads of them and you could watch them all like close in. And then, oh, is the light still there and close out? And I've never, ever seen that ever in my life before. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm 30. I didn't even know that was a thing. No, I didn't know it was a thing that I could (laughs) sit there. But at certain times, if you hit them at the right time of light and when they're in their growing cycle at that point, it will do it. So I sat in a big field because I thought, oh, there's got to be some that are doing it at this point. And I saw like spotted ones that were going in and out and others that weren't. But I was like, oh, I think that's kind of why we like things like David Attenborough, don't we? Because it just yeah. makes you realise, like, oh, it's so insane that that's going on. And I think, but also things like ASMR, which is obviously quite quite a newer thing and a, a newer trend, but it is very much taking notice and focusing on something that's quite, I want to say a name, not that I'm saying Daniel Lines are a name, but it's something that's not normally your source of concern or stress. And, mm. yeah, the mindfulness is something that I know a lot of people might be quite wary of trying but there is a lot of research that supports that it is a really useful individual approach to stress management that's really effective yeah and I just think it just makes you realize like yeah the the dandelion was one thing but like the fact that you can look in nature and and even some of the things that you watch like insects that mate even though they know they're gonna die and all sorts of stuff like it's just like (laughs) wow they don't wake up every morning going oh they like wake up going, no, I want to reproduce and I want the life to continue where they could just be like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, gonna stay here in my safe <laughs> space. It just, I don't know, for me, sometimes when it all gets a bit too much, you just realize like all these incredible things that, that nature are doing and yeah, they don't need like, I don't know, they don't need money or, or milestones or, or things to, to do what they do every day. So it's, exactly, good, yeah. it's good to zoom out. That's the individual. If anyone's maybe... Yeah. Obviously, I'm in a privileged position of being um, on the board and as a director of Quarter Cloud. What is that as an organization that I could take on for my team, but also maybe someone else listening that has that privileged position of having employees? Yeah, and I think really this is where organizations can, but also the, the cybersecurity sector as a whole. So mm-hmm. whether it's professional bodies and that relate to cybersecurity charities or whatever it is i think as a sector we just need to have more of like a call to arms of how we're going to deal with stress because the point that you mentioned earlier is that we don't want in 20 years time 
huge strikes in our sector because we haven't served our people very well and we've just created another generation of stressed out people. So I think very much we do need a call to arms to how we're going to best manage the stress of stress of cybersecurity. And I think there's a few there's a few kind of tried and tested ways of doing this within organisations. One of them is um, having stress management as part of the strategy. So rather than it's having been a tick box exercise where you might have a guest speaker once a year and might send some posters around the office. It really needs to be more than that. It needs to not be a tick box. It needs to be part of your strategy and very much focused on how you're going to deliver on the mental well-being of your staff. And some of the key ways of doing that is one, doing like a stress audit. So understanding what are the roles in our organization that are very stressful. What I was mentioning earlier about those high strain job roles, is there jobs that have very high job demands but low control but also low low social support as well i didn't we didn't really talk about that earlier but one of the key determinants of stress is actually low social support so if there's job roles where people might be an individual contributor which you have a lot in cybersecurity, they they might not have a team it might just be one person who has that job role which is common in cyber right there's not many people exactly yeah yeah. especially in organizations that are maybe just starting to build out their functions they might have Mm. one person who wears multiple hats, but often one person who might just do do one job role, you know, and that and you know those those types of job roles will carry a lot of stress because social support there might might be an issue. So those job roles that are high strain, um, jobs that have low low job control, low social support, those three key key things are really quite crucial to sources of stress. So do a stress audit is one way of approaching that. So doing an audit of the, of those job roles where what are the sources of stress for our staff and how can we best manage that out through through organizations um there's a few different ways of um intervening depending on what the type of stress is so if it's if it is job demands then you need to be focusing on whether that workload is excessive that that staff have been that given um, is it a staff resource issue? Is it just a case of that the expectations and around the job rules and the rules and responsibilities aren't clear, which means that often people might have a unnecessarily high workload. It could be staffing levels, um, as I mentioned, um, people not taking breaks or not taking their holiday as they should. So looking at how leaders behave when it comes to those types of things because oh, often it's such, such a thing where i know i'm bad for this because i don't take a lunch break very often and i work yeah. <laughs> at night most nights like i get my emails done at night and i try my best to make sure they're scheduled for the next day but it's like how do you set those boundaries for your team if you don't put the boundaries in yourself yeah and you don't do it you don't do it as a manager to make them feel guilty it's just you're just busy so you're like oh i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep going and i'm gonna get done and i'm gonna do the emails tonight because i don't want to let my team down that i've not got back to them for two days but you don't realize that you're uh creating a culture or a behavior that you might be putting across on your team and it's not even coming from a bad place or even to be like oh look i'm working harder than you it's just how how things are and then yeah it's not till you step back like you said and go oh okay am i am i creating this unintentionally creating this culture exactly where I expect yeah. everyone to be tied to their desk yeah and it is it is that leading by example because even if you if you're making it visible and often my email it is visible because you see the time that it was yeah. sent your people your people will pick up on that and 
often, and, they, and they will follow that behavior because they naturally they naturally follow their leaders. Mm. So that is quite a key one. Is not not just around the the work life balance side, but any kind of stress management aspects as well. Particularly the um, the stigma bit, which we mentioned earlier. The the leadership and stigma is really really important because if you're a leader and you're talking. If you're being um, open and talking about mental health or stress and making it clear that you're approachable, but also that you're um, making yourself vulnerable as well, that people will see this and they'll see you as being more trusted. So there's not only just a benefit in terms of how people view you as a trusted leader, but you're also going to be create that culture of mental health as well by being open and expressive and making making yourself vulnerable, which does sound difficult because I think historically people as leaders have always been told to be quite close and quite guarded mm. but really for, for the, the types of organizations that we have these days the research shows that if you're if you can be more open and vulnerable at the right times I'm not saying be vulnerable all the time but you know being vulnerable at the right times it does people do see as being a lot more trustworthy um, and it will reduce that stigma of mental health in the workplace so I think in terms of organizationals they do really have the gift of reducing the stuff the, the the stress on their staff so there's the reducing the job demands increasing job control if that is an issue increasing community and social support um i think as a sector we can look at how we do that you know across the sector as well do we have the right networks mm. for people who sit in individual contributor roles or roles where they're not associated with high social support you know, how, how are we building those connections where people can turn to their external peers and, you know, have a chat or, you know, defer defer to them if they're struggling with work. So it's, I think there's a few things there. There's also, you know, support and work-life balance um, and generally just as an organisation recognising that it's not, it's not a weakness of the individual, it's a weakness of the environment that they've been put in, which has caused them to, caused them to be stressed. Because, um, I, I spoke to a few people, a few, uh, you know, we are in more of a um, a masculine kind of uh, industry, right? And I mentioned that I was going to do this campaign because I was seeing it coming up more and more. And when this steps that came out and there were a few people were like, oh, it's just, that's just a bit of a fluffy subject. I don't get stressed. I'm a man. Um, <laughs> you just rolled your eyes on that. Um, <laughs> and interestingly, we did a podcast earlier with a gentleman called Neil Shah, who I think you'd both get on really well because um, he runs an organisation, a non-profit for stress management. Um, and he was saying that he ran a webinar yesterday for the cybersecurity industry um, for stress management and, and, and that sorts. And there was something like over 100 people came online and only one of them was a man. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I realised, oh, this getting this message out there, this stigma of it being a weak, a weakness to uh, be vulnerable or to show that, that you need help. Um, I feel like we're a long way off this, if that's the case. Um, and you, as a doctor, a male, and within the profession, do you think there's any things that um, that we can do to gradually change the stigma? of mental health in men. And I think that is a problem when you have cybersecurity leaders expressing those types of attitudes mm. towards like mental health. Um, I think for organisations that 
do you have those types of attitudes? It's, it's recognizing that you might see it is a weakness to talk about these things, but if you have that type of attitude, these things will just be festering beneath the surface. And you'll see that in poor performance, high staff turnover, you know, all these all these outcomes that are associated with a stressed and burnt out workforce. There's no positive benefits to it. You know, you may, you, you know, by putting a lot of pressure on your staff and creating environments where the where it is high pressure and high workload, yes, you might get some immediate productivity benefits, but you're going to create long-term stress and mental health, but also physical health problems as well, if that's the type of culture that you want to fundamentally promote. Going back to your question, which was, remind me. Oh, my question was uh, the fact that there's still a bit of a stigma, even... The stigma, yeah. Yeah, even if, like, it isn't a leader, there's still... Because uh, this webinar was open to um, any IT professional, whether it's director, SOC analyst, network engineer, the fact that it was one man to over 100 women. Um, is it in the messaging or the language that we're using, maybe not using mental health, like maybe it's a, I don't know how you're doing. I don't know um, of way. And interestingly, a gentleman that I interviewed earlier, he's in his 60s and he was just like, oh, if you'd asked me this 10 years ago, I would have just been like, I'm a man, I don't get stressed. Um, yeah. Yeah, how do, I don't know. There might not be an answer to it. You might not be able to tell me, but... Um, yeah, people might see these podcasts and go, oh, I don't need that, skip. Um, yeah, of how maybe we could put the messaging out better from a psychological way of making someone, I don't know, open up without making them realise that they need to. I think it's about, you know, meeting them where they're at. So, you know, communicating it in a way that's really going to resonate with them. So, yeah, they might not resonate with the terms of mental health, but, you know, if you're selling it in terms of, optimizing your performance, being right. more resilient, being more hopeful, you know, meeting your goals, the, the types of things I spoke about earlier around psychological capital. You know, there's there's a competitive edge to be to psychological capital. The book's literally called Psychological Capital, Developing Your Human Competitive Edge. Is that a book? Um, yeah, it is a book. It's based on a lot of psychological research called it's based on a lot of psychological research, but they call the concept psychological capital, recognizing oh, like that you this. have human capital social capital but it's a very much more of a positive psychology approach to stress management and it does focus a lot on how you can develop that competitive edge so that that is one of the ways of thinking about yeah, it see, that's, actually how that's do quite you... a masculine way of presenting yeah. it like if i said to the sales guys oh i want you to be part of this training webinar because it's psychological capital that means that you're going to have the competitive edge you know for well everyone in that room is going to be like oh well, i'm there Whereas if I said, yeah. oh, I'm going to do some workshops on stress management and your well-being and your mental health, they'll all be like, mm, how's that me making sure I get the next quarter? And this is a language thing, isn't it? It will also depend on the culture of your business as well, right? If you've got a business that doesn't, where people naturally don't talk about these types of mm. things, getting people to sign up for those courses where it's going to be really observable that like you've attended it. They might be they might be reluctant to do that. So right. do do think about how you deliver these types of things and within the context of your organisational culture. So if there is a high stigma in your business, maybe it's more of a one to one type of approach that would be more effective, mm -hmm. or something that's run by an external company rather than run in house. Um, so yeah, it, it, a lot of it will depend on the culture of the organisation and whether they as you were mentioning earlier, you have that stigma or just a naturally a bit more kind of masculine 
type of energy. Um, but yeah, the, the communication side, I think, is one way of, of looking at it. But also, um, yeah, just really just meeting people where they are, like trying to understand what are those barriers mm. that people have? Why is it that they don't talk about it? Why is it that they don't want to attend uh, training or don't want to attend um, awareness sessions and really get into the heart of that? Um, and getting senior, as we were talking about before, getting senior leadership just to speak about it, to, you know, whether they would be happy to share their stories. Yeah, or we to, did. We, um, I, I mean, I'm really lucky in the fact that we're quite, we're a bit like you guys. We're quite young and we're growing really fast. We're al- allowing to create our culture as it comes, right? So we don't really have any particular um, things, but we actually interviewed our CEO on the podcast. Um, ah. Uh, yeah, it was very good. And I, all I asked him was, it was quite a simple one, like you're very young CEO. When you decided to do this, you were very in your early 20s. Most of us are just enjoying our first job. And I was a bit like, tell me, your childhood and why why at 21 did you have to go after this and that just opened a massive can of worms and he was like oh I think that was too personal like everyone in the office is going to hear that and I was like I totally disagree I feel like everyone's going to have empathy and understanding of the way that you drive the business that you do and why you want it to be a huge success yeah I think yeah I think sometimes you think oh if I tell my story people are going to think that I'm not as strong or you know see me in a different way and I was like I, I really even because I've you know known him and he, I classify him as a friend and I've been to his wedding and stuff. Even I sat there and was like, "Oh wow!" Like I have an even more understanding of why this is so important to you. Um, yeah. So, I think definitely as, as as leaders anyway, choosing to be open is definitely better than choosing to be guarded. Mm. As an approach, like if you if you're guarded, people are just less likely to trust you as a leader. Whereas if you're open, show vulnerability at the right times, be transparent. It just creates more trustworthy and healthier function organisation. I'm glad you agree because I've, we're trying to include it in people's onboarding packs. So when they start, they know mm. a little bit about us. We'll see how it goes, but hopefully. Thank you, John, because I appreciate we've massively overran and we also were running really <laughs> late. Um, so I really appreciate your time. And I think this is, oh, I feel like I'm just dipping the toe in this very deep, conversation that could go in loads of different ways so I really really appreciate obviously you've got so much understanding and uh, research in this where I'm just looking at it from an outsider so I really appreciate your time thank you very much Um, it's a pleasure to work with you and Immersive Labs if anyone wanted to learn about you or Immersive Labs where would you tell them to go? If you'd like to learn about Immersive Labs do visit our website and hear about how we address people-centric security. Um, if you're interested in learning about, more about me, you're very welcome to have me on LinkedIn. Or, oh yeah, just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I was going to get all my email there, but then I was like, probably not the most secure thing to do. But. <laughs> and then he'll get loads of phishing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much, John. <laughs>